Welcome to our second episode. I have two very special guests joining me, Laura Bartram, a mental health counselor in Charleston County Schools, and Sarah Ramsey, a clinical social worker. The three of us often talk about various issues our children face and know that if we work together as a community, we'll be able to have a greater impact. Our first step is understanding what it means to be trauma-informed. This is important for for everyone from the custodians, mentors, teachers, and administrators. So what does it actually mean to be trauma-informed, Laura? Um, to me, it just means that you are aware, you know, as a school-based clinician, you are aware of what the kids are bringing in from their home environments, from just their neighborhood environments. So it's, it's being compassionate and empathetic towards kids who, you know, have those really extreme behaviors that we often label as, as bad kids you know, and really have a deeper understanding of why those behaviors are manifesting um, and have really good interventions to tackle some of those behaviors. And so, you know, I try and teach my schools, like, don't be punitive, be rehabilitative and kind of look at what or where those behaviors are coming from and what they are trying to tell us. Um, you know, I always say there's no such thing as a bad kid, just a kid that's misunderstood and that has gone through some stuff and, and they're, they're trying to adjust and, and cope to the best of their ability. And so I feel like the biggest part of trauma informed for me is just building those bridges um, with the child, with the family, with the community to be able to help that child kind of work through some of their past and ongoing trauma as well. Um, and so to me, that's of course, in a nutshell, kind of what it means to be trauma-informed, just to be aware and to be educated as well of, of what trauma looks like in a kid, because it can look very different from kid to kid, and, and they can be quickly labeled, um, and so it's just to be educated um, and, and understanding and compassionate for that child. Now, Sarah, I'm going to you. How, why is it important in your job? Um, you're oftentimes dealing with the families. Why is it important for you to be um, trauma-informed and what does that look like? So I think Laura hit it very, very nicely in, in the points that she made as far as awareness um, and just just knowing that people people aren't difficult just to be difficult. People, people bring things with them each and every day and their experiences really shape how they see the world and what their reactions are. Um, they're not, everybody's not starting from the same equal playing field. Um, when they've experienced trauma, no matter what the scale of that trauma is or how many adverse experiences they've had, they're bringing that to the table in each and every interaction. And so I think in my position specifically working not only with parents, but foster parents, as well as the kids themselves who may be in foster care um, or have had actual maltreatment experiences that are widely identified as trauma, it's important to realize first and foremost that they're not necessarily going to trust you right away because their environment has been incredibly chaotic um, because of these adverse childhood experiences. and it's all about that empathy. It's all about building bridges. I think Laura termed it, which is, I think, a beautiful way to put it. It's extending and meeting them where they are and realizing that the challenging behaviors that they're displaying are just that. They're behaviors. Those are symptoms because they've had these other things go on, and it's a lack of skill to meet what the demand is rather than just being obstinate or we like to label them as defiant or hyperactive or all these buzzwords that people know, but they don't really know where these things come from. Trauma is where these things originate. And I think 
the most important thing that people can do is just understand trauma within your role. No one can do it all. It's a systemic thing that we have to work together to address. This kid interacts with so many different um, settings and so many different people and different professions that everyone, if they know their role and look for the signs and help in the way that they can and develop the relationship the way that they can, everything works much better. Absolutely. And it's beautifully put. I noticed you've brought up um, adverse child experiences and we also, we typically refer to that as ACEs, um, just so the audience knows that. Um, but what are some examples of adverse childhood um, experiences and why is it important for us to kind of understand that, um, Sarah? So the ACEs study, since we've defined it, an ACE is an adverse childhood experience. And so this it started back in the mid 90s, I wanna say 95, it, mid 90s, we'll go with that because I know that for sure. Um, Kaiser Permanente, basically an HMO out in California did a study of their, the people who received services from them. Um, and they were noticing this pattern that people who had traumatic experiences in childhood had poorer health in, um, outcomes later in life. So of course, from an insurance perspective, they're looking like, okay, how can we limit these so that we don't have to pay as much? But there were good things that came out of it as well, because now we know that there are certain hallmarks. There's actually, if you go to, it's um, the CDC website actually has the full study on there and you can find the tool on there. Um, there's 10 different ones on the, the regular scale. There's an ACEs 7, there's also an ACEs 10. The ACEs 10 is what's most widely used. It's been adapted for international use because there was some criticism that it wasn't necessarily the most culturally sensitive tool, um, that it didn't necessarily address all the types of trauma that you could have, but it, it hits on major hallmarks. It hits on emotional, physical, sexual, um, different abuses and maltreatment that people can um, experience. There's also things on there um, about, like, have you ever had a family member that's been incarcerated um, and different, you, I mean, a quick Google search will bring it up. Um, another trauma that we don't necessarily think of as trauma because it's so widespread is where your parents ever separated or divorced. Um, those are the types of things that we may tend to minimize, but they can really have an effect on the way that a child sees, sees the world. And so I think, my recommendation as a clinician um, and the people that I work with is always know your own ACEs score. Um, mm -hmm. Go through that, that questionnaire to, and you may not be in a position where you're administering it to other people, leave that to clinicians, um, be your role, social worker, teacher, um, mentor, whatever your role is, but, but know your own because self-awareness goes a long way in how you're interacting and relating with those kids. And I think just kind of add what Sarah said, I think also doing like really nice genograms can also, which is like a family tree and kind of noting all the ACEs and how they're very generational. You know, I, I think it takes what up to three generations to really start or break a, a cycle. Um, and so I think knowing what your ACE score is and then kind of doing like a family tree a genogram, it can be really helpful. Um, because, you know, I, I tell my parents and teachers, like you are the agents of change. Like you're not just changing it for this child, but you could also impact, you know, their children and their children's children. And so it really is a bigger picture issue. You know, we're not just trying to help 
that child succeed, but really break some of these dysfunctional cycles that these ACEs seem to really latch on to generation after generation. Um, I, I really appreciate everything um, that y'all just talked about. Something I, I kind of wanted to get to is, you know, a lot of times when we go in our schools, there, there are kids that might be thrown a desk and you can assume there's probably something going on in that kid's life. Well, there are others that it's not as visible. Um, it's, you know, we have to really get to know the child to maybe start to identify maybe there's something not quite there. Um, a lot of kids are what we would consider very resilient, um, but it could be that they're in a, a state of more denial. Um, how, how long do you think that um, trauma can lie dormant? And do you think that eventually, um, if it's not dealt with, is it something that could, maybe the child is very successful all the way through their 20s, and then all, all of a sudden there's something that brings about and can you maybe think of an example or how it might affect them even later in life? Mm -hmm. I'll go to Laura first this time. Yeah, you know, I think that some kids learn to kind of live and be resilient in their chaos. And I don't think, you know, I think that some we look at those kids and we think, oh, they're not impacted, you know, they're not infected. But yeah, you know, sometimes they internalize it more. And so later in life, you know, they can have you know, more physical symptoms, you know, uh, heart disease, smoking, um, drinking, you know, things like that, that might manifest in different ways, because they're kind of learning how to self-medicate and kind of just get through a day-to-day. -day. Um, and so, yeah, you know, trauma manifest in very different ways, you know, just like other illnesses do. You know, some kids who, you know, they go and hide under a desk and they completely shut down versus a kid who is throwing a chair and completely destroying a room. And so we really have to kind of meet that child where they are at and learn that trauma doesn't just come in one package. You know, it comes in a lot of different packages and really learning what the triggers are and, and learning that child, you know, and that's where we go back to that relationship and building that relationship and really getting to know the individual child and so in, in treatment we make treatment plans that are individualized you know we don't have just one trauma treatment plan we have it for each child each family um, to become very individualized so we know how each of them presents but definitely you know if, if trauma goes un, unchecked and untreated you know it does show up in, in adults um, you know with their attachments to other people um, you know, their relationships when they're older. And so, yeah, you know, just because something isn't completely in your face now, you know, doesn't mean that it can't show up, you know, later in life. Um, and so teaching kids earlier and earlier, you know, about emotional regulation, distress tolerance, you know, healthy relationships, healthy boundaries, those are all very important things. So as they grow older, they can recognize those healthy patterns. Because right now, their normal is chaos. And so they might just be kind of going about their lives like everything's, you know, good and great. But really, they're in a very dysfunctional pattern that they just can't, they don't recognize as much. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that you mentioned, you know, um, hitting them young. There's something called zones of regulation. You know, teachers have posters um, to help kids learn to regulate, learn to re recognize their feelings. They might not, they might still be facing the trauma. So there's only so much, you know, we can do in that moment, but helping them to recognize that in early ages is, is, is in my opinion, very important. But um, going back to what Sarah said, she mentioned, you know, just knowing what your ACEs are. And, you know, when I think about schools, probably workplaces as well, um, 
if you've never really faced and thought about your own traumas and the way you're going to react, um, I, I think this is the mark oftentimes schools miss, especially high need schools, why you have a whole high turnover rate. Because, um, you know, looking at my, my research here, I found that 45% of children have a high A score. So that's like a four above. So we can only assume that probably about 45 or more percent of teachers that are working have faced those traumas too. And they might have held it back, but then they go into a high needs title one or a school with a lot of trauma. And a lot of times that can come back and their reactions to maybe what the kids are doing can be reflective in the way they um, actually respond. I'll start with Sarah. You know, how do you think, you know, um, the, the teachers maybe knowing their A scores could help them, you know, in communicating and so forth better with their kids? I mean, I think you, you bring up a lot of really important points there. I think what I work with parents on and foster parents in particular who have kids who are, who are exhibiting these challenging behaviors, my catchphrase to them, and they, they get so annoyed when I say it, but it rings true. Dysregulated adults cannot help regulate kids. Right. You, you just can't because all you're doing is escalating the situation and you're making things worse and then you're becoming dysregulated and then the kid just and it just keeps building and building so just it's a vicious cycle and so in order to understand how to regulate yourself you have to understand what your triggers are and how those manifest in your interactions um, and knowing that there are certain things that trigger you and, and it's okay that they trigger you, but you need to know how to manage that in a way that presents a calm front and you're still able to keep that relationship intact. Because as Laura's mentioned, if you, as you've mentioned, relationship building is key and you can do a lot of damage to a relationship if you don't understand how to regulate yourself because that kid has a very low level of trust to begin with because they live in constant chaos and they live in disrupted attachment all the time so that's the norm for them so it think about it if you were to start building trust with this kid and then all of a sudden boom you're just like every other person in their life who becomes dysregulated and screams at them and does damage to that relationship that damage builds and builds and builds because what they thought they had they don't have anymore so it's going to make it even harder for them to trust the next time you know, I feel like I have my phrase just like Sarah, and it's, you know, be part of their calm, don't add to their chaos. Um, literally just said that yesterday to a parent. Um, and I do, you know, that that social learning, that modeling is so, so important, that validating, you know, just, and I think a lot of parents think that, oh, if I validate them, that means I'm approving of the behavior. And that's, that's not it. You know, you can validate the, the feeling, the emotion without approving of the behavior. And so I think kind of, just heightening some emotional intelligence because a lot of our parents do have trauma and so they're kind of at least the parents I work with are, are stuck in kind of a child mindset you know because they were kind of stunted with with their trauma um, or they were just they were kids when they had kids and so they were never given the chance to really process things um, and even therapists and social workers you know we have supervision um, we have to, to process a lot of things you know there are sometimes a family comes to me and they do, they push my buttons, you know, they're kind of triggering to me. And so I need to go to a supervisor or someone I trust and say, hey, this is making me feel this way. Like I need to process this. And so just being 
aware and knowing when to ask help. Um, I, I don't think teachers get that a lot, which is really unfortunate um, because I think a lot of times, as you mentioned, they probably do have aces of their own um, and they have not been given the chance to nurture themselves as well. And so it, it kind of manifests with the yelling and the screaming and the frustration. Um, and so I think really good supervision, a really good support system for the, the helpers is really important just to be aware of, of our stuff, our baggage. Something I, I thought was an interesting statement that I found in um, researching, it um, stated disconnections from negative emotions usually means experiencing few positive ones either, or not even getting close to experiencing one's potential to have fun and be happy. Um, this actually particularly talks about men um, because men often feel like they have to pu push those negative emotions down that it ends up creating problems later on in relationships, um, being able to have a positive relationship. Um, I just kind of wanted to see if you all had any thoughts on that because I thought that was pretty profound. As far as men shutting down and then it being cyclical? Yes. I mean, I think that I do see that a lot because a lot of our kids come from situations where they haven't had stable parenting and, you know, parenting is the hardest job that anyone will ever have. And I mean, I can say that experientially and objectively, but um, it's, it takes a lot. And when, when you don't have that base and you learn that, hey, it's okay if I shut it down. Um, if that, that's been your experience of emotions, you, you don't ever fully experience any, any emotions, be they positive or negative, or if you've experienced positive emotions, it's hard to manage because then you don't trust that that positive emotion is going to continue or that something is going to ruin that experience for you. So it's, it's a lot harder to be a present parent. And then that's what's modeled. We talked about socially modeling and um, Laura brought up that point. And if this is what's modeled for those kids, this shutting down, then they learn those patterns as well. So, um, you know, we kind of addressed, you know, also educators being aware. Um, but I think as soon as educators hear a webinar or talk like this, um, they often feel like, oh, goodness, you know, you're telling me like how to do my job again. Like, I know these kids have issues. Um, I get it. Um, and teachers feel like you just put a little more on them. Every time you're saying something, you, you can just see a teacher's shoulders, you know, a little more burden. But I want it to be just very clear that when we're talking about being trauma sensitive, it doesn't mean that our educators are expected to be in the role of therapist. And I think that's often what's missing in schools is you either have one extreme or the other. You have a school that is, academics, we got to get these scores up, you know, like so focused on, on scores and impressing and then we have the schools that are so focused on oh well it's just you know they come from almost a sympathy rather than empathy and the teachers start to feel like well i i i can't give them a consequence i can't there, there's kind of this fine again they're not the therapist so what does it look like in the classroom for a teacher how can they best support their kids um, I, you know, we've already said relationships, so I'm going to kind of skip ahead. Um, consistency, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. Um, I think that's really, um, I think that's 
really important. I think that our kids who come from trauma, it is so chaotic. There, there is not a lot of structure. There's not a lot of consistency. And kids normally they they will buck up at the, that structure at first, and we call it an extinction burst. You know, once you kind of try and, and create some of that behavioral change, you know, it's kind of like a bell curve. You know, behavior does get worse before it gets better. But if you can survive that extinction burst, then we see that level or the behaviors kind of level out a bit. And so that the the relationship and then the consistency and the structure, you know, and I always say that rules plus relationship equals respect and rules minus relationship equals rebellion. So it's the three R's. And so, you know, it's not enough for us to be just punitive, especially to this, you know, subset of kids, you know, we really have to set consequences that are, are rehabilitative that they're learning opportunities that they're not just you know that's why I'm I'm personally against thinking um, you know it doesn't really teach anything and it's gonna make a behavior worse especially for a kid who has a history of, of abuse um, and it, it's just been proven not to be an effective learning tool either um, and so really having rules that are you know they're kind they're fair um, they're consistent along with that relationship i think if teachers could really focus on those two things then i think that they would they would see it in the classroom um and again it goes back to that validating you know just kind of you know my husband's a teacher so obviously you know i i hear a lot about the frustrations of teachers and and their overworked workload so i think that also teaching teachers first and foremost about self-care and that you can't force them to be tough. And so I often, you know, if a teacher comes in and, and talks to me, you know, I say, how are you doing? Like, what's going on with you? Um, you know, what, what do you do to kind of refill your cup? Because I think that self-care is, is so important because they're not going to be able to focus on helping these kids if they're not helping kind of their inner child and themselves too. So honestly, like even before the relationship piece, like kind of the relationship you have with yourself too. Because um, I think a lot of our teachers feel broken and not heard and invalidated. And so I think those three things for me are what teachers should really be focusing on. And I think everything else kind of falls in place after that. I love that. And I love when you're talking about consistency, because I also think of the word predictability. Mm -hmm. um, Big, you know, something I read here is um, the kids should know in advance what the consequences are going to be. They should, and, and they might still find it unfair, but, you know, the consequence was the same yesterday. Today, it's going to be the same tomorrow. I shouldn't have to guess what your reaction is going to be. Oh, one day you're screaming at me and one day you're laughing. I, I think Laura gave a, a really nice um, response to that. I, I think the only thing that I would add is just at maintaining high expectations, but also realizing, like, that these behaviors come from some sort of skill deficit and so making sure that we are in in our responses we're still mirroring back and and using phrases like i can see that you're upset by this you know what can we do to get you to a different place and it's individualized based on the kid but really helping that kid under partnering with that kid and helping them understand like no your behavior is not okay but i also know that there are there's more going on behind the scenes I still need you to be on track with this. And that goes back to the predictability piece, but saying like, look, there are ways to get there rather than just saying, oh, well, you did this. So this is your consequence kind of thing. Partnering with them, naming what the emotion is, helping with that social learning. And I think that we're seeing 
just how much teachers do with this the the COVID-19 and people being on e-learning these kids are missing out on so much of the social emotional piece that teachers do not get credit for teaching and they really deserve that credit because they're the ones in it they're the ones forming these relationships and modeling that every day and if we can make small tweaks to that approach like you said you'll, you'll get your explosion you'll get your behavioral explosion but then when we flatten that curve back down it's much smoother sailing for everyone as far as classroom management and just the everyday dealing with the administrative side i think all of us are agreeing we're not saying that you don't have natural consequences um you know, we're, we're not so focused on how we can punish this kid, but we do want our kids, especially kids that maybe are coming from a background where they haven't been taught, they haven't been given real consequences or boundaries. We still want to make sure that we are establishing boundaries and setting a natural consequence. Mm -hmm. So um, what does, um, what do you think uh, consequences look like? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of research out there on the way that consequences should be implemented. And there's some conflicting research. Um, what I tend to lean towards just my own personal practice with my kids is more inclusive consequences as far as, okay, instead of distancing the child and saying, okay, you're suspended, you're doing this giving that child the one-on-one -on -one attention and explaining like, hey, you know, you can get positive attention, things where they can earn more and, and setting up, you know, different rewards as far as, you know, if you're completing this and you're on track, you're giving those kudos. Um, the, the public praise works really well for a lot of these kids because a lot of it is seeking attention in ways that they've learned and it's negative attention. Um, I mean, there's still, if there are safety concerns, yes, you still have to remove that child. I mean, if they're throwing a desk, obviously, you know, we need to get that kid to a point where either you're removing them from the classroom or moving other, you know, students from the classroom. Those, those are more extreme situations. But if you, if you stair step it a little bit and put in those positive discipline practices by rewarding and encouraging positive behavior and paying attention to those um, as far as noticing and then ignoring the mind minor stuff when you can and making it intentional and saying I'm going to choose to ignore that when you can display this behavior this desired behavior that I'll give you the attention and taking that two seconds that it takes to say you know what Joe you're doing a wonderful job sitting still today I know that that is not easy but you have done that for the past five minutes and I really appreciate it those kind of small little things that take that I mean that whole statement maybe took five seconds of time that means the world to that kid Absolutely. And as I just want to read this to you all. It said, um, um, kids that are impacted like this, they see discipline as arbitrary and unfair. They don't tend to go home and reflect on their poor decisions, no matter how big the consequence. So a suspension for 10 days does not, honestly, most of them don't care whatsoever. That's not a real consequence um, for them. Or you're sending them right back into an abusive situation, you know, and where they're going to be even further traumatized. Yes. And mm -hmm. so you've lost that relationship that you've started to build with them. Um, they see you as kind of part of that, you know, in a way. Um, Laura, any thoughts? Uh, you know, I feel like with kids, 
positive reinforcement is always going to be better than negative reinforcement. You know, when we do behavior modification, it's all about really piling on the positives. And I think a lot of teachers and adults struggle with that because it's, well, we're, we're rewarding them for things that they just ought to do, you know, their work and things like that. But, you know, we really have to shift that mindset of, you know, it's kind of like if a child has reading problems, you know, we really offer a lot of support for that child. You know, we don't shame that child. We don't, you know, we don't give this severe consequence for a child not knowing how to read. You know, they might get an IEP, they might get a tutor, you know, they get all this other support. And so it is, it, I think it's harder to empathize with a very difficult, sometimes aggressive child, you know, because again, of kind of our own interpretations of that. And so for me, you know, consequences are a way of life. Like we have to have them to kind of know how to function. You know, when we're older, they're called laws. Um, but really, if you want to do that behavior modification, really focusing on what, like what Sarah said, but the positive reinforcements and, you know, the, that consistent praise. And, you know, for me, a reward is, oh my gosh, good job. That's awesome. Or I'm so happy to see you today. And it shouldn't just be done once a day, you know, for, for our kids with trauma. It should really be done all throughout the day to really make a, a lasting impact on them. So Emily, can I can I add something real quick that I, I talk with, with my families about a lot? Is Laura, you kind of reminded me of this point about um, really taking it back to their developmental level because what we know about the way that trauma impacts a impacts the brain if a kid is traumatized and has a, an adverse child experience that that is really and truly traumatizing to them at the age of five that's basically going to be their, de their developmental level at that point um, just because the way that the brain works and and the impact I mean we could get into all the neuroscience behind it I'm not going to but um, look at the child's developmental level rather than their chronological age, because I think it's easy to see a fifth grader who's throwing dust and, and you're, you know, I know we keep going back to throwing dust, but displaying any kind of challenging behavior and thinking you're too old for this mess. Like you should know better by now, but they don't necessarily. And it, it goes back to that incremental skill building. I mean, if a kid doesn't know how to swim, having a shark behind them saying, oh, well, this is going to happen to you if you don't swim is not going to help them because they don't have that skill. They never learn that motion. So it's up to us to figure out where they are. And you do that by, you know, there's, there are formal assessments, but you do that by forming that relationship and really understanding where it is that that kid's coming from mm -hmm. um, so that you can teach them that little doggy paddle and then we can teach them a full-on freestyle that you know maybe they can get away from that shark but that that fear and that panic it doesn't work for these kids because they're so used to it mm -hmm. and I actually I love that you brought that up Sarah because um, and my own personal experience I, I worked every day a kid he was in kindergarten he was at the higher end of you know they're just beginning reading level but he was in a higher reading group I worked with him every day. He knew probably 40 words. All of a sudden, I am not kidding. He came in and he was trying. This was one of my babies, you know? He could only do like six words. And I'm like, what is wrong? And you could tell he was different. He got angry with me at one point. Um, he, we had a little, I had to, I was like, hey, just go sleep in the corner for a little bit. Um, the next day I came back, still did not know the words. And um, I don't know what happened to him at home. I don't know what his family was going through. 
but I actually, I feel like I, I witnessed a, a child in fight or flight. He went from, you know, developing and all of a sudden I saw this significant regression. And it was kind of like that the, the rest of the school year. And you're right, you know, neuroscience has found that even in the womb, um, trauma can affect brain development. And I, again, I think that's our part as educators is being sensitive. You're right. When we're talking about these aggressive behaviors, yes, they need a consequence. We have to keep safety of our kids, but we also have to realize, is this child, does this child have the cognitive, cognitive ability to understand what he or she is doing? Um, so I love the way you put that. No, I think Sarah said it great. You know, in trauma, it's, it impacts things that we don't see. Um, you know, other illnesses, you know, cancer, a cold, you know, anything, you know, you can see it on the outside. And I think even with trauma, you can too. But I think a lot of the damage is under the surface. Um, and we don't always see that. Um, other than in the behaviors that it's manifested. So I think Sarah kind of bringing up the, the neuroscience behind it is, is really important because that's something kind of out of that child's control that we really have to take into consideration. Absolutely. Um, so Laura, what are some signs? Uh, again, there are some kids that maybe you wouldn't guess have been through certain types of trauma, but what are some signs that you would tell educators and even our mentors to kind of look for? Again, they're not psychologists. We're not trying to place them in that role, but we all should be aware of sure. what are some signs that um, might you might recognize as trauma-like behavior. Um, so I normally do a check-in with my kids who well, that I know have that trauma history and that I don't know how to do. Because, you know, some of our kids are going through trauma that have not been um, you know, reported yet. And so I think it's that just all of our kids, we check in. Um, I ask about sleep, about appetite. I just ask about safety. Um, I ask about, um, you know, any suicidal thoughts or homicidal ideations, um, change in grades or in school behaviors, you know, is there been a spike of, of referrals when there's been some smooth sailing? Um, you know, I have some of my trauma kids who, um, they were referred to me because they, um, demonstrated something called enuresis and enthapresis, um, so which means um, pretty much having bathroom accidents on themselves after they are past the potty training stage, um, a change in mood, you know, they're very tearful, um, or their anger outbursts, you know, have been escalated, um, so those are all some kind of basic signs um, that you can you can look for um, if they're coming to school just dirty or if they're losing weight or things like that or some of the kind of physical signs um, you know um, are their clothes too big are they too small do they have marks on them um, so those are some things that you can look for and kind of ask um, that are some good indications that maybe we need to dig a little little further in that child if you're not a trained professional or you know school counselor and this is your job um, I would say be very careful about probing for details because you can actually um, mess up your relationship with the child. Um, so if you start to get those feelings of the kid, if the child actually tells you a little something that might be concerning, you, you need to go to your support staff, go to the school counselor, um, go to mental health, go, go to somebody to ask what your next steps are. Um, even uh, I've been a school counselor and there's been times where I've had questions which I call on the phone Sarah because she comes from a background of you know 
social work. So sometimes I'll ask her questions. How do you feel about the situation? How should I deal with this? So always having somebody that you're, you're talking with, don't ever try to handle a situation on your own. Um, I mean, I think to that point, knowing your status as a mandated reporter, I mean, if you are working with children in a school setting, you are a mandated reporter. Um, and so sometimes your administration may not necessarily want you to report, but it is your duty to do so um, if there's been an out and out disclosure. If you have any questions about it, again, I think you guys both said it, seek your support, seek your support system. Um, I think going back to some of the other symptoms that general lay people can, can look at, one of my pet peeves as a clinician is seeing how overdiagnosed ADHD is. Hyperactivity can also be a symptom of trauma. It can be a symptom of um, PTSD in particular. We see a lot of irritability in these kids, like a low frustration tolerance. Um, you have some kids that just out and out withdraw, um, just refuse to participate in anything. Because, um, I mean, you think about it, it's, it the, their thoughts can be so overwhelming if they're experiencing trauma on an ongoing basis and they're having these re-experiencing symptoms where they're seeing it and they're playing it over and over in their head. Of course, they're going to get upset at having to do a math worksheet because they can't focus long enough to be able to do it. Um, so I, I think, again, I, I don't want to get into, you know, the clinical side of things, but these are these are just signs that you can look at. When, whenever your gut tell you, tells you something is not quite right here, that's when you'll know to report it and talk with someone whose job it is to, to get those things, I don't want to say under wraps, but to, to investigate them further and get the, the child the help they need. But this all goes back to, and I know we said it probably a thousand times already in this discussion, it goes back to the relationship because you're not going to know what's normal for that kid and you're not going to be able to determine what changes that kid has made unless you know what that kid is like on a daily basis and you have that relationship with them. And I think to add to Sarah, I think I totally agree, and I'm so glad you brought it up, that ADHD is overdiagnosed, and we overmedicate our kids as well. Um, and it is hard, in my opinion, to treat those trauma symptoms when a child is overmedicated. We also, I think, overdiagnose something called oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. Um, I've never met someone who's classified as ODD who has who doesn't have a trauma history. Like I, I just, I've never, I've never treated a, a kid with ODD without trauma. Um, and so we do tend to go for those diagnoses. Um, I think ADHD, because we can medicate it and it does pacify the kid, but it doesn't really help any prolonged change. And now we do have kids that are ADHD and they greatly benefit from medication, you know, but it, it really, we've gotten, I think a little carried away with it because it's, it's an easy form of treatment. Um, and so really educating the parents on, you know, medication is your decision. You know, these are, these are some of the avenues we can try um, because sometimes if a child is overmedicated, it is really difficult to honestly treat that trauma. Um, and so I'm glad she brought, brought up that the hyperarousal, hyperactivity is also a trauma um, component as, as well. Because um, sometimes we do quickly label 
children. And also there is something called a forensic interview. Um, and so normally when a child discloses abuse to me, I make that report and then I suggest or I recommend or refer them to Dean Norton in order for them to do that forensic interview because it's a way of interviewing the child and the family that is not gonna be leading to them. Um, you know, someone who is not trained in a forensic interview might ask some leading questions and it can kind of make things a little bit tricky if, if you know, that report has to go to court or, or something like that. So yeah, definitely not um, asking things that are leading and, and making sure that the appropriate referrals are being and I, all children at the schools don't present the same way. So I, I think oftentimes kids go unidentified. So is there any recommendations that you would say maybe putting in the forefront of the year to as far as testing kids, how ethical do you think that is um, in determining what the children's needs are throughout the school year? I think that's a difficult question because some, if the questions are not asked in the right way, as far as trauma history, it could trigger things. And then if it's not properly done, um, it could make things worse. I also think that you're not as likely to get reliable answers before you actually have um, a relationship with the child because they're much more likely to disclose if they have that relationship and they feel safe. Because again, a lot of kids are coming from a point where, oh, well, school's authority and they've had very negative experiences with authority. Um, so as far as testing and screening at the outset, I'm not necessarily in favor of that. What I am in favor of is, you know, teachers being trained and, and all school staff, I mean, down to cafeteria workers, you have a role in this and not that their role is any less because it's, it's a huge role, but anyone who has an interaction with a student, which would be any and everybody, I think needs to be educated in the signs, knowing what hypervigilance looks like. Is that kid constantly checking the door? Do they have to sit with their back to a wall so that they can see things? Those type of things. And then you can refer them and having that good relationship with a school social worker, a guidance counselor, then hopefully. So being able to refer to that mental health person who has that expertise. Uh, there is an excellent, excellent training that I would absolutely recommend to anyone and everyone. It's free. It's through MUSC. I mean, it, they're not offering it right now, obviously, because of circumstances that are beyond our control with this pandemic, but um, the Project Best um, website, and it's just, and you can Google MUSC Project Best. They actually have a roster of qualified clinicians who are registered to do trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like the gold standard for addressing trauma in children. Um, kids from three to 18 um, are eligible to participate. It's a highly structured um, intervention. It's wonderful, but they have what's called um, community stakeholder training, and so you learn to how to interact and make good referrals and kind of follow up on that if you're the one who has the the relationship um so i would absolutely gold standard highly recommend um checking out musc's project best and and learning more about um signs and symptoms we found i really like the idea of all of our educators getting trained in that what what is a good um referral to mental health and going through proper channels and communication is key we've really found this in a lot of schools, there's such a lack of communication. Um, nobody feels supported. Um, everybody's kind of in their silos. So um, that, that would be a great training for us to recommend. I think it's 
<clears throat> also very difficult with just class sizes, you know, and I, I tell my teachers, I, I could not do your job. Um, you know, most of our, our kids at the school I'm at, you know, it's a classroom of 20 to 25 and 75% might have an IEP that they do have to follow a very strict behavior plan. And that is very overwhelming. And so, you know, I, I wish that we could have true trauma settings with smaller class sizes because we miss things. You know, when you have 25 very high flying, high risk children, it's very hard to meet all of their needs. And so, you know, in a perfect world, you know, our, our, we, we would have these trauma schools that were very trauma informed, that were also on a smaller scale as well. Um, and I think that's just hard with kind of consolidating schools and, and funding and, you know, it's kind of a big systemic issue. Um, but I, I think that's a, a big barrier that it would be great if we could decrease that class size, you know, have two teachers per a classroom of 12 kids and really meet those individual needs. Um, because I think it's very difficult and, and, and I think teachers are trying the best with what they have. Um, but yeah, I think what they could do right now is become more educated um, so that they do know those signs. You know, they might not catch them all, but they can catch at least a few of them. Um, lightness to dark is another good trait. Yeah, darkness to light. Yeah. Dark, I'm sorry, darkness to light, sorry. Hey. Um, sorry, um, yeah, it's, it's a good training, um, just kind of a good overview. Um, so that might be another one that teachers and support staff have kind of looked at. It's kind of a good one. I don't think it's as it's not as intense as I haven't done um, Project Best, but it's a good introduction, I think. Yeah, Darkness to Light, and what's what's great about Darkness to Light as a nonprofit, I think it's like D2L.org. Again, you can Google it; they're local, but they will come out and do a training for free for mm -hmm. your staff. Like they'll do it, it and a church community um, and community organizations. They anywhere that there is an interest. Now they focus mainly on childhood sexual abuse, um, mm -hmm. but they do talk about other indicators of different mm -hmm. types of trauma as well, but um, they're a fantastic community resource. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think to your point, Laura, like we, we know teachers are, they're, you guys are freaking miracle workers. <laughs> like, let's, let's be honest, like the, the job mm -hmm. that's done on a day-to-day -day basis and the care and concern that, that they show these students is absolutely incredible. And I think that that goes back to forming those professional relationships and, and welcoming other resources. Like we don't, like Emily said, we don't necessarily always have to jump straight to, oh, they need a mental health assessment. Maybe this kid needs a mentor. Maybe this kid needs a lunch buddy. Maybe this kid needs a peer buddy to learn how to have those social interaction skills because sometimes it may not be trauma. It may just be this kid legit doesn't have any social skills, has never learned that, has never had that model to pairing them up with somebody. Using, being smart about uses of resources. And there are lots of volunteers out there who want to help. It's just a matter of saying, you're figuring out exactly how to utilize them in the right way so that this kid it again it all comes back to relationships and what how we can facilitate that without using the valuable educational time that you all have absolutely and i i love that y'all hit um because this is kind of the way i wanted to wrap it up is hitting on community partnerships mm -hmm. because again as educators we're like, oh, they're my kids. <laughs> and you become a little possessive and you're like, they're staying in my classroom. I'm going to punish them the way I want to, you know? And I think in order to make a difference in the lives of children is we really have to create a village around them. There has to be more than one adult on them. 
um, teachers have to be supported and they have to be open to the support. Um, and I know Lauren and uh, Sarah both, I think you kind of do the same thing when you're working with somebody clinically, a younger person, uh, especially when you're first starting out building that relationship, you might sit down and play a game with that child. Now, when a teacher walks by and I'm playing a game in my office, a teacher automatically thinks that kid is getting a reward. Well, what you don't realize behind the closed doors is that child just told me that there was a fight between his parents the night before. Um, that mom's boyfriend had a pillow over her head. You know, they're, they're kids, the, the way you get things out of kids is often through meeting them where they are, which at that level, it's through play. You can't have them focused on what actually happened. They have to, their mind has to be taken away off of it in order to get to what the real issue is. Um, and again, that goes back to teachers have to be open to accepting the help and recognizing that we are professionals. We're not there to reward them. We're there to teach the behavior. I absolutely love play therapy and art therapy. And I incorporate it in every single session that I do um, until that kid, you know, I have kids who they come in at some point and they're just like, no, I just want to sit and talk face to face. And I'm like, okay, I, I've done a good job, you know. Um, but, you know, play and art, it's the opposite of trauma. And we want to, by creating those new kind of neural pathways and new experiences, we want to do what is, is opposite, is new to them, which is play, which is art, which is healthy relationships, you know, to kind of help them grow and become more resilient and also I think it's really important kind of with what we talked about to know that not everyone is ready for treatment just because you refer doesn't mean that that family or that child is ready and I let my parents know you know just because the school is referring you to me it does not you know these are voluntary services you know unless you know someone like you know DSS or the court is like mandating that but other than that you know you come here because you are ready for that healing and so I, I think, you know, sometimes we get these referrals from schools or other community agencies and families aren't making progress and saying, well, you know, they might not be ready and that's okay, you know, and, and we do sometimes have to discharge families who just aren't ready to participate in treatment. Um, you know, I've gotten some families who they absolutely didn't want to come in, but I was able to engage them and build that relationship and, and it was very successful. And then there are some that unfortunately, they just never got past either the stigma or the fear or they just weren't ready. Um, and that's okay, you know, and I think just to validate families that, you know, this is your story, you're writing it, I'm just kind of like a co-pilot here, um, and, and I think in that way, you're empowering them as well, you know, you're giving them a choice, and so I, I think that's important as well, that not every referral is appropriate at that time, and that's okay. Absolutely. And um, Sarah actually runs a program called Strengthening Families. And, you know, I, I know, and I'll let Sarah talk about this a little bit, um, but at, at the heart of it is, is actually teaching the families, how do you play and have conversation? How do you listen to your, your kids? So I would love for you to kind of um, just share a little bit about the program and, you know, kind of because I feel like it kind of goes together. It hits on the same things. It's teaching the families the same things that we're, we're teaching them in our sessions when, when we work with kids. Yeah, so strengthening family, it's, it's a wonderful program that I've been very, very fortunate. I have a wonderful staff. Um, and it's, it's strengthening families is, a, is an international model actually now. It's been studied in, in multiple countries. 
um, in all 50 states and um, it's evidence-based and it's it's a 14-week program or I should say 14 session it can be done twice a week but essentially just the crux of it is just improving communication because it's really a skill that has to be taught and we don't necessarily think that because it comes so naturally to a lot of people in more helping professions like teaching or counseling social work those kind of things but people do not know how to interact so that's what we start off with we you know we feed them a meal for the first 30 minutes and then there's separate parent and um, child sessions for um, an hour and then you come back together and actually practice the skill in a fun and practical way um, and then you're also meeting needs there are different incentives and this is a completely free program um, for families to participate in and it's I think a lot of why families buy in is because it's a whole family process. Um, we tend to focus as professionals on, uh, well, the kid is displaying challenging behaviors. So he or she is the problem. Let's give them all the services. And I don't want anything to do with it as a parent, fix my child, that kind of mentality. But this teaches those parenting skills in a, it's just such a relaxed way that no one is, no one is the identified problem in this. It's, it's a whole family system learning together, their parallel curriculums, and then they get to come back together. And then just this non-invasive, very laid back way, they get to practice those skills. And it's, it's been incredible to see some of the changes and those have ripple effects. When you have better parent training, you have better outcomes for the child. And that has a ripple effect over every system that child touch, be it, you know, the school system, if they're involved with mental health, if they're involved with um, Department of Juvenile Justice, DJJ, there's, there's better outcomes that you see because you are strengthening that family unit. Um, so it's really been incredible to be, to be a part of, you know, if anyone is interested, I'd be more than happy to, to talk more about it. Um, but I think that knowing those resources is important um, as teachers and, and asking, asking, because sometimes that's all you have to do is ask and say, hey, I heard about this type of program. What can we send this entire family to? Because a lot of times if that kid is having issues, there are most undoubtedly issues in the family. And even if there aren't issues in the family, everyone can benefit from improved communication patterns and everyone can benefit from social skills training and peer refusal skills and things like that. Because those are the things that teachers, while you guys would love to teach that, you just don't have the time. <laughs> there are just so many constraints placed upon you. And it's, it's, again, knowing those resources and knowing when to make that appropriate referral because you have that relationship and you see that change and you want better for that child. Absolutely. And the thing I like about the program is some of our families that may have come in, they're in fight or flight as well. You know, we talk about kids. Um, so when they come, come in, we have a pocket, so to speak, of resources. And once we start to identify the needs of the family, we can provide that to them in a loving way. They don't see us as a school that's coming at them, that's telling them they're doing something wrong. Um, I really believe that they see the people who work in the program as their friends, as part of their village. You know, the mm -hmm. first time they're questioning when they come, but by probably the third session, the kids are fully bought in. They, they love the leaders, the adults love the leaders, and it becomes, it's almost like a little tribe. And um, you see families supporting each other, there's not judgment. Um, and again, we're, you are able to kind of go through Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs. Do you have enough food at home? 
oh, I'm going to make sure to get a gas card to this family. I'm going to make sure. I just think that the program meets so many needs for the family. So great program for people to check out. And the families I know who have gone through it, Sarah, I think some with you have enjoyed it and they endorsed it. Um, and, and so whoever is, is going to be listening to this this interview, I would definitely suggest checking it out because it does, I mean, it's amazing. Um, it really does check all the boxes. You guys do a great job. Appreciate it. We, uh, we love helping the community because we want to be in the community for the community and by the community. It doesn't work if you take this outside in approach. I mean, we need everybody. And I, I've just been real pleased with how people have bought into the program and the the referral links that we've been able to make to, to help these families beyond what our reach is. Absolutely. And that's the last thing I kind of want to, to hit on is, you know, we can sit here and we can we can blame DSS, we can blame the schools, we can blame our parents, we can we can say it's because of all these reasons, but in all of my observation and all of my reading is you have to have a community buy-in to make a difference for these families. So we all have to lay our own egos aside, we have to take acceptance for where we are, but how are we going to move together to make things better for the future of our kids? Right, because it does. It takes a village to, to raise a child, but it also takes a village to support the community and yeah. the work that, that teachers and mentors and counselors and just every vital piece that touches a child's life because those ripple effects show later. These are going to be productive members of our society and the work yeah. that we do now. It cannot be understated how important it is mm -hmm. to help them progressing on. That was such a great discussion. Sarah and Laura are great resources to help us understand our children better. If you have more questions, please email me at ecruise at Be A Mentor Now or write on our Facebook community group. Thanks for being the village. Catch you next time.